4: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour uh, tells a story of a teenage runaway turned Hollywood executive in her memoir called Blind Pony, As True as a Story as I Can Tell. Um, as true a story as I can tell. And uh, her name is Samantha Hart. She joins me now by phone. Hi, Samantha. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me.
4: Um, that's a pretty dramatic turnaround in a person's life to go from being a runaway to a Hollywood executive. And I just I want to put this in perspective because a lot of people, um, and you know this better than anybody in Hollywood, make claims that maybe aren't... <laughs> Aren't as true, but you've earned a (laughs) you've earned a reputation as an award-winning creative director, um, for marketing campaigns that brought prominence and Academy Awards to films like Fargo, Dead Man Walking, Boys Don't Cry, and and much much more. Um, You know, helped helped uh, influence the cult status for independent features like Dazed and Confused, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And uh, Priscilla queen of the desert that's that's just naming you know a few of the things that you've been involved in, so what we're talking about is actually somebody who has been tremendously successful in the wake of a not so successful beginning. Uh,
1: that about some that sums up a good part of what my book My book is really about the first. 20 years of my life or about 20 or so years of my life and just sort of getting to that tipping point where I actually got my start in the record business. I worked at Geffen Records with a lot of artists of the day like Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and and then I went on to have my film career um, but yeah the the book covers uh, my childhood and, and then running away and
4: trying to find myself and and this is this is one of those times samantha reminds me of a conversation i had with uh, someone who was instrumental in developing comedy central and he says well i was working at hbo and then and i was like wait wait a minute wait a minute back up how did you get to (laughs) hbo um you know how did you go from being a teenage runaway to working at geffen records
1: Well, um, I, you know, I detail it in the book, but in a a, a short manner of speaking, I think I kind of, I've just been, I've been extremely lucky. I I feel like I had a lot of really great mentors and sometimes I liken myself to being like Forrest Gump. I'm sort of sitting on a bench and all of a sudden (laughs) I meet somebody (laughs) and they come up to me and I'm like, well, how about this? I think I really had a mantra when I was young. And it was, you know, I would say to myself, you've got nothing to lose. And that simple phrase just gave me confidence and allowed me to go beyond my comfort zone, to almost dare myself to do more than survive, but to thrive. And it took me a little while, but eventually I did. Uh, I don't recommend that to most people as a life skill, but for (laughs) me, you know, the The book's central theme, and I think it's about survival and how to keep going when things feel insurmountable. And just trying to buoy myself up with, uh, I think for me as a teenage runaway, I felt like my childhood had been disenfranchised. It was kind of taken from me. And I had no control over that. And so the only control I could exert was by leaving the situation and I had very little, few life skills and I was completely alone. But like I said, that phrase just kept me going and I felt like this can't be it. I have, there has to be more to my life. And I think I, I felt a lot of shame, uh, from things that happened to me in my childhood. And for a long time, I was really running away from that. But I think when I sort of grappled with that and finally, said, it's okay, but all these things, I, I can let go of this, then my life really started to turn around.
4: How old were you so when you ran away?
1: Kind of, I was 14.
4: And how did you, how did you live? How did you uh, manage well, from day to day <laughs> at 14?
1: Well, I, I went to, initially I went to Arizona, I was looking for my dad. And he was a character I only knew as Wild Bill. And I didn't <laughs> not, I didn't not know many him very of them
4: well in Arizona, all. Samantha. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, exactly. And I I did find him and, you know, I I tried to I thought maybe he would I could move in with him and his family and and that wasn't gonna happen. Um but I I'm glad that I got to know my father. I mean, it was very meaningful to me, uh, even if it was only to validate the reasons my mother left him <laughs> um, were, were were probably good reasons because he was kind of a scullywag. But I, I went looking for him, and I ended up uh, sharing an apartment with someone, and I used her ID, she was older than me, to get a job. Uh, at a restaurant initially, and I was, it it sold alcohol, so I had to use her ID, and I, it was, I tell a funny story in the book where the owner of the restaurant, Joe, he would shout out, Angie, Angie, come here, you know, and I didn't respond to it, because that (laughs) wasn't my name, and so then I started making up tales, like, well, I'm hard of hearing in this ear, and You know, I mean, just kind of shucking and jiving my way through. Uh, I didn't want to be found out that I was a teenage runaway, of course. And it was was, really important for me to... Samantha,
4: Samantha, how was it that, uh, you know, when you met your dad that you you didn't end up being sent back home?
1: Um, Well, I know it's quite unbelievable. I asked myself that question for a long time. But I think it was just real simple. My mother, I'm from a family of five girls and I'm number four and all of us kind of left in quick succession. And I think that she want, you know, I I think she just really wasn't equipped emotionally to deal with us. So that's the only thing I can think. She just didn't want me. (laughs) So, uh, so I, I just found myself alone, and I picked myself up by my bra straps and put one foot in front of the other and just kept going. And I I found that I was really good at sales after I lost the job at the restaurant. I got a job at J C Penney selling robes, and I was very good at it. I mean, if you walked into my department, you weren't going to leave without slippers or lingerie or a robe. <laughs> I. I just found that I had a really good ability at at trying to walk in someone else's slippers, you know, so to speak. And I would get inside what their, what would make them be motivated to buy the, the item or whatever. And I got fired from that job because my father showed up unannounced one day and I was hitchhiking back and forth to my job and going to high school at the same time. Uh, So, he came one time to surprise me and he was drunk off his butt and he just walked in, he walked into the store and he insisted on going out the employee entrance with me, but not before he grabbed two poinsettias because it was Christmas time and like stole them, stole the poinsettias. (laughs) And I was, I was so angry at him, but you couldn't be angry at my father for long because he had a way of, he had a charisma and that just, took over all sense of reason and I got fired the next day from that job so it was kind of like that for me I just kept going from situation to situation and just doing the best I could under the circumstances and when I came to Los Angeles that's where eventually my career really took off Uh, I was like you know well you said you were going to 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 school how
4: how were you enrolled in school?
1: Well, the first day I met my father, and this is in my book, Blind Pony, uh, the story of meeting my father, it's actually one of my favorite chapters, Um, and reliving it from the perspective of a woman sort of reflecting back on that time as a young girl really made me appreciate what happened in a unique way. It sort of made me realize that all these things that happened to me are some total of they're what makes me a great mother. I have three children of my own now, and I'm a, I am think one of my greatest achievements is my children. But as I was looking back on all this, it was just unbelievable to me. I just couldn't believe what happened. But I went to a bar uh, we had designated would be where I'd meet him. It was a bar called Dave's Tavern. And it took me a few moments to be able to walk over to him, but I, I knew it was him. And... So he, the first thing the bartender says, what, what do you want to drink? And he said, I said, I'll have a Coke. And my dad said, make it a rum and Coke. And that was it. (laughs) Boom. We, you know, five rum and Cokes later, you know, we roll out of the bar (laughs) and my dad hands me a C note, which is a hundred dollar bill I discovered. And he's like, here, Sam, have a C note. And I never saw a hundred dollar bill before. And, um, And then he said he would come and enroll me in high school the next day. He had I had an apartment set up with it. He had an apartment set up with someone for me to live. And uh, he came true to his word the next day with his hangover in tow to enroll me in high school. And it was about two miles from my apartment. And every day I walked or hitchhiked to school. And I was I was actually a really good student, very bright, and so I was able to graduating early i skipped some you know classes and took some correspondence courses and was able because i realized i had to support myself i knew my dad wasn't going to be there I and mean, he would show up you know out of the blue he'd come and beach himself on the sofa before he'd drive home he'd be drunk most of the time i interacted with him so it it wasn't it wasn't a healthy relationship by any stretch of the imagination so I just uh I knew I'd have to get busy and get a job, so I, I that's what I did. I graduated early. And I invited my mother to the graduation but she didn't come, so you know, I
5: Where I were you from originally part of the book
1: reflecting? Well, I'm from a farm in Pennsylvania. Okay. In rural Pennsylvania. And uh you know, we had a horse farm, and that's where the name Blind Pony for my book came from because my grandfather, who was very abusive toward me, he, when he gave all my sisters and I horses or ponies, he gave me the blind one. And it was kind of a metaphor for me of not being seen and heard. And in some ways, you know, she would spook. She was very, she was very, like, Spooky, Like when you'd be riding her, any little, you know, branch cracking or whatever, she'd jump. And so I had to really be her eyes and really um, help her get through it. And it really bonded me to this, this pony because I felt damaged like her. And so that's where I took the name from. Kind well, of a metaphor.
4: And and I think that this is uh an important start of the uh of the story. Samantha, I have to take a uh, a short break here. Um can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? I think this is a, a fantastic story.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, sure, I'll stick around.
4: Okay. Um my guest is um Samantha Hart and uh she's a Hollywood executive who Uh, share some tips on overcoming adversity in her book, The Blind Pony. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello,
1: darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner.
5: I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of
1: a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app you can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous tip tab, or you can call
5: 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19,
4: Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support.
1: I know this is a really
3: hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me... I have two teenagers to deal with, but the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe.
2: Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. dot
0: com.
5: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Program.
4: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with Hollywood executive Samantha Hart, who uh, tells the story of uh, overcoming adversity in her memoir, Blind Pony as true a story as i can tell. Samantha, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around and sorry to make you sit through all that.
1: Oh, thank you. No problem.
4: Um just before the break, we were we were talking about uh um your early years in in Pennsylvania and then heading to Arizona in search of your dad and you ran away from home at 14 and and then kind of really fended for yourself in uh in, by most measures, uh, working at various jobs and going to high school and, and hitchhiking to get from place to place. And uh, you were about to take us to um, Las, Ve- or Las Vegas, Los Angeles. Um, how did you end up deciding to go to Los Angeles and, and what did you have in mind? Did, were you going to, to become a star?
1: no (laughs) um well i mean it's so many uh, people's
4: story you know as i you know i wanted to be a movie star so i went to los angeles
1: yeah i i never had that bug uh i i think i just wanted to get away from my dad at that point um because i felt it just made me like once I graduated high school I said I'm just out of here. There's nothing keeping me here and I didn't enjoy the weather and I did enjoy being out of the snow. So I just sort of figured Los Angeles had a better climate. I mean that was really the extent of my na- naive mind. And
4: you said sort, sort of, sort of parent- you said sort of parenthetically uh, Samantha that um, you graduated high school Why did high school, and you said in the last segment that you were, you know, a good student and and did well in school. What was it about a, a young teenage runaway that mattered about going to school?
1: Well, I think it was just a personal benchmark for me. It was something that I didn't want to Black. i just i wasn't i wasn't orientated that way i was always orientated to be i had big hopes and dreams for my life and i felt that without a high school diploma i would just be you know a re, you know kind of a a dummy or whatever uh well yeah but a lot my exposure. of exposure
4: a, a lot of young people exper- who run away end up living lives of of being a dropout and in and, uh, um, being involved in sex and drugs and rock and roll.
1: Well, there's plenty of sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, in my future, but um, <laughs> but at the at that moment, I think I wanted. I was still, and this is something that's very. I, I find it very sad, even just looking back on it about my life. Is, I even though my mother was absent for most of my life, I I wanted to show. I wanted to prove to her that I was worth something. And I really think that's a big theme in the book is finding your worth and that's your important. identity. And yeah, it is. And I think that I wanted to show her that I could do this. Like it was just extremely important to me. Uh so I didn't want to be defeated by my uh by my story, my own set of circumstances. I think that people, you know, and I'm finding from people reading the book, uh, there are a lot of blind ponies out there. There's a lot of people who have, at some point in their life, been challenged with a choice like that. Do I take this path because it's easier or do I really challenge myself and say, that's not good enough for me. I'm better than that. I can do better. And, I think that's kind of what got me through
4: it. And, and um, you said you were drawn to Los Angeles uh, largely because of the weather. I lived out there for about a year, and the weather is very addicting. Um, I, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, um, I mean, and people who ask me, you know, how did you like Los Angeles? And I say, well, everything you've heard about it, good and bad, is true.
1: Exactly. <laughs> was, was, that sums it up.
4: Was was that um, basically your experience in Los Angeles? And and how did you how did you manage to to find um, any any sort of grounding when you got to Los Angeles?
1: Well, it took it took me a while. I'm going to be honest. It took me a while. I don't want to make it seem like I came over here and my life was a fairy tale. It certainly was not. Uh, at one point, I Part of the other reason I came here is I had met someone in Arizona who told me about someone in California, in Los Angeles, who uh, was looking for a roommate. And that wasn't exactly the case. Uh, this man was looking for someone to entertain him, is basically more like it. Uh, but it was a place to go to. And so I I came out to Hollywood, and I moved in with this man, and he had a room for me and everything, and I said, well, I want to pay my own way, and he was like, fine with that, but in Los Angeles, if you don't have a car, you basically don't, you can't get around, and it was was after the whole Manson murders, and people didn't pick up hitchhikers anymore.
4: Yeah, how old were you then?
1: 16 and so did you have a driver's license i actually did not but i did have a car up until the night before i was going to drive it out of arizona i left that out the little nugget that my father discovered that i was leaving because i i actually left him a message at dave's tavern and said hey you know i would like to see you and he kind of got wind, he was very clever, and he just he just kind of projected that that's what was happening, and then I confirmed it, so he came and put sugar in my gas tank so that I couldn't drive the car out of town. Oh, no. So, <laughs> So, I didn't have a car, and I actually didn't even have a license. I couldn't, for some reason, pass the test. So... I passed the written test. I couldn't pass the driver's test. So I had a permit. Uh, but at any rate, I came over here, and this man that I was I was staying with, he was an avid backgammon player. It, backgammon was, like, making a big resurgence in Los Angeles and or across the country, really, I think. And I had never heard of it, and I was really intrigued with it. And uh, so... We would stay up till the wee, wee, wee hours of the morning playing backgammon. And I just got hooked on it. And he had a, a rule book, and I read that thing cover to cover several times and really became quite skilled at it. And then by happenstance, I met someone who, at a bar, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, actually, at the Polo Lounge, I went there for an interview and I didn't get that job, but I decided to, you know, hang out at the bar a little bit and see who I could meet. And I met this man, a producer, and he took me to a club where that it was a it was a backgammon club. And I eventually went on to like compete in backgammon tournaments, and you know could no one could beat me, basically, and I sort of earned this title, the name Backgammon Girl, and so I sort of did that for a while, and it was fun and exciting, and then eventually I moved out of that house, and I met a, a wealthy playboy who let me stay in his mansion, uh, Hall Mansion, and, you know, and I just kind of knocked around and eventually got into styling and uh, for photo shoots and I discovered I, you know, I left the backgammon world behind and sort of moved over to become a photo stylist. And I was very good at that. And the man that I was working with was British and I ended up going to, to England with him and working over there. And then one thing or another, I mean, basically, uh, I ended up kind of traveling the world and had a lot of really incredible experiences. So my my college education was really spent just learning about the world and life and experiences. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of pulled all that together and went on to work for a magazine. And then one thing or another happened and I ended up in the music business and then the film business, and then most recently ran. I ran a my own company with forty people, and we did uh, advertising. And now I have a little creative boutique. And,
4: so. and what was it? Just a, a drive in you, or are, are there things that that anyone can learn from your experience, or is everybody's experience different?
1: I think everybody is unique. Everybody's experiences are different. But I think like one of the things that was important to me about telling my story is to let people know that they can they can achieve beyond their wildest dreams. They just have to really discover their worth. They have to really understand that how important you know, they have important things to say and they have important things to contribute. And you can't let anybody tell you you don't because that's you you need to tell yourself you can. So I think that's, that's the biggest message is discovering your identity, coming to terms with personal shame that you might be feeling. I know that my personal shame almost killed me because I... I had a really difficult time as a young woman accepting that these things happened to me. And I used to have nightmares about it and constantly, you know, thinking about my mother and wondering why she didn't like me and why she didn't want me. And, you know, these are some real things that some things that are very difficult to come to terms with in a young life. Uh, But then I, I, I think at some point I came I, I I uh found peace with it all and my life changed for the better because I I've discovered my worth.
4: You said earlier that you were abused by your grandfather. Was that physical abuse? Was it sexual abuse?
1: It was just about every kind of abuse uh, you could imagine, and worse. Um, he he was not well, uh, not a well person. And um, I, think, I think because I was five years old when I went back to... I was almost five, I was four years old when I went back to the farm. My mother uh, left my father when I was about four. And she took us back to the farm because, you know, it was a big house. She had five children. And we were all quite close in age, but uh, it was overwhelming for her, I think. And my grandmother was there as well. And it just seemed like the right thing for her to do. Uh, but I don't think it was a good idea. <laughs> and it wasn't, at least for me. And, um, you know, he, he sort of started abusing me within a few months of my arrival there and didn't stop until I ran away.
4: Were your sisters so, experiencing the same kinds of things? You said they all left. That that all of you left well, in a fairly their, short their, time frame.
1: Yeah, their experiences were, you know, their experiences. I I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable talking about my sisters because that that's for them to come to terms with. Uh but. You know, each of us had a different set of circumstances. And I think for me, in particular, it was the age I was when he got control of me. And, you know, I was so young that he kind of was able to manipulate me and really convinced me that if I ever told anyone about the abuse, that he would, you know, we would all be without anything and it it would be the worst imaginable things would happen. And I believed it. And then as I grew older, I knew that wasn't true. Uh, And I look back on it and it's like, I mean, it comes to a head at one point in the book where my mother sees him abusing me and she does nothing. And I think that was the final straw for me because I was, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept that she wouldn't be an advocate for me. So now, I realized I had to be my own advocate.
4: And and once that decision was made being your own advocate was it um did you did you have dreams of things that you would like to do um or or what you would consider no. a better life or were you literally just working out of a sense of of survival and moving from upgrade to upgrade?
1: It, it was a sense of survival. I had no life skills, Tom. I didn't even know, you know. I, I really, I mean, I had, I had a, I was very precocious. I was always very precocious, <laughs> and I think I had sort of a an, a big imagination. I talk a lot about that in the book, but those things, you know, so I could I could imagine something wonderful happening. I always had like hope. I was filled with hope always. So I had really believed in, they call it now, the power of positive thinking. Uh, And that was something that I, I really, I felt very invested in. I felt very invested in myself. Like I can do anything. I can do this if I want. So, I mean, it took a lot of nerve to be able to run away. Um, I didn't know where i w- i mean i i I sort of knew that I was gonna see my father, but there was no plan about it. I mean it was just kind of I had the clothes on my back basically, and just i just um uh, yeah i i i think I just kind of bumbled along, but then I realized uh at one point that I really enjoyed creative. Being creative, like I, I told you I started with the styling and found that I was very good at it, and uh, you know, creating looks for people and ima- you know using my imagination to create a set and do all that kind of stuff, and I still enjoy doing that, so uh, but and then I started I always was a writer. I kept copious journals my entire life which is one of the reasons why I was able to write the book, because, you know, I wrote everything down over the years. Um, They were kind of like a roadmap to discovering. It was fun because I hadn't read the journals in a really long time. And when I pulled them out and started reading it, there was one message I had made to myself. I said, I was 12 at the time, and I said, one day I'm going to write my story about me, nobody special. And when I read that, I just got tears in my eyes and I said, you know, I think it's time I wrote this story for real because I I need to fulfill that dream that this 12 year old girl had. And looking back on it, I, I knew why I said that. And it was because I wanted to help people who might've gone through abusive situations by shining some positivity in their lives.
4: How therapeutic was uh, writing and keeping those journals?
1: Oh, it was incredibly cathartic, always. Um, And writing the book, actually, was really cathartic. I didn't realize that not every little tiny corner of my heart had been healed. I thought it had. Uh, But as I was writing the book, I could feel light kind of shining into this the the hollow places in my heart and lighting me up because it was very it was very emotionally cathartic like just let go of all this stuff you don't need it in your life it's over it happened now you've you know I went to years of therapy to get to the place I am but you know I don't go to therapy now and I didn't like I said I didn't realize that maybe little tiny parts of me hadn't totally, you know, gone through that same metamorphosis. And so the book, writing the book really helped me to come to terms with everything.
4: Did the, uh, did the journals, um, by, by logging where you had been, did it help inform, do you think, where you were going by uh, keeping track of, of those different, levels and accomplishments. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes, sometimes the writing gets very erratic in these journals and I'm screaming at myself, "Don't do it, don't do it." <laughs> and then I <laughs> that I realize now that I did it and you know, I I am okay. You know, I got through it and I'm okay. So it was um it was pretty fun to look back on. And I definitely recommend people keep a journal. I just think it's so important to be able to have that time with yourself. I mean, some people are able to meditate and get there, but for me it was always writing in a journal and sort of having this dialogue with myself where I would put out the pros and cons and kind of uh, look at it clearly that way.
4: Well, it's... um it's it's an incredible story. What's what's next now for Samantha?
1: Well, I'm I have my business, uh, and I aptly call it Wild Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we do we do uh, we get involved in projects um, creatively. That uh, I do a lot of I do a lot of. Nonprofits, nonprofit work, which I really love. And I'm kind of focusing on that right now. Um, we're getting involved with some people to, to try to bring vaccine awareness out there um, into the world and, uh, you know, kind of talk about how important it is to get vaccinated and, you know, not be afraid of it um, because the, there are a lot of other things to be afraid of if you get sick. So um I think the vaccine is just a an incredible scientific discovery and it should get out there. So I'm gonna I'm advocating in that world right now. And I do I I enjoy working on um just a wide variety of projects. Anything that interests me, um or that I spark to. So
4: Samantha, do you have a, a website where people can find out more about you and about the book and, and all of your work, past, present, and future?
1: Uh, yeah, you can go to my website at samanthahart.net, um, which is about the book. And then my my company is well, wildbill.la. Um, I don't really have any of the movie stuff up there. I mostly have the advertising stuff I've been working on more currently. Um, but I, uh, I'm also on Instagram at the real Sam Hart and on Twitter at Samantha Hart.
4: Well, Samantha, it's been an honor and a privilege talking with you. That's a fascinating story. I could, uh, we could go on and on, but unfortunately we're out of time, but thank you for sharing <laughs> some of your story with us this morning.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and, um, Look for my book on March 15th.
4: All right. Thanks again.
1: Okay. Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye.
4: That was uh, Samantha Hart. She uh, wrote a book that uh, shares tips for overcoming adversity, um, as she did being a teenage runaway-turned-Hollywood executive. The book is called Blind Pony, As True a Story, as I can tell. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back to wrap up today's edition right after this.
1: (laughs) this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now,
5: and now, and now too, and even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing, or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit CDC.gov.
1: I get the uneasy feeling Rod
3: Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling.
5: Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where
3: is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower,
5: I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All
4: right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the
5: Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I
2: got a feeling something strange is about
3: to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling,
1: and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons.
4: This day will go down in history as precedent-shattering. John Bickerson is smiling. Despite the lateness of the hour, the fact that he has had perhaps the hardest day of his life at the office, John Bickerson is smiling. Why? Tell us, John. Two weeks vacation with pay. <sighs> Wait till I tell Blanche, brother, how I've longed for this. I'll sew myself into the bed sheets and sleep for ten days. John? Hello, Blanche. How is my beautiful wife? What? Would you like me to bring you a glass of milk and a cookie? And here's a little present for you. You look wonderful, honey.
3: Oh, this is awful. What's the matter? This morning I burned my hand on the stove. I ripped my only pair of nylons. My inlay fell out. And now you come home drunk.
4: What are you talking about? I'm not drunk and you know it.
3: Then why are you so nice to me? (sighs)
4: What's the use? When I come home tired, can't smile, she beefs. When I come home and try to be pleasant, she accuses me. Put out the lights.
3: You're not going to bed with your shoes on.
4: Yes, I am. I work like a horse. I might as well sleep like a horse.
3: Why did you bring me a present? What have you been up to, John? Bring his wife a present.
4: Oh, stop it.
3: A husband doesn't bring his wife a present unless he's done something wrong.
4: I've brought you a million presents and I've never done anything wrong. Never. Not since the day I married you. I wish you'd let me sleep.
3: Sure. Sleep. That's the easiest way out when you've got a guilty conscience.
4: Blanche, I tell you, I haven't got a guilty conscience. Then
3: why did you buy me an expensive present?
4: It isn't an expensive present. It's the crummiest present I could find.
3: I could believe that, all right. What is it?
4: Why don't you open it and see?
3: I bet you've gone and thrown away your money on some stupid thing I can't even use.
4: Oh, you can use it fine.
3: A home beauty outfit.
4: It's got everything, just what you need.
3: Wrinkle cream, freckle remover, hair darkener, false eyelashes, chin reducing strap. What kind of a present do you call this? What are you hinting at?
4: How did I know what was in it?
3: Nobody would use this but a homely woman.
4: Oh, that's not true. All women use it.
3: They do not. Only the homely ones, and I wouldn't touch it.
4: The sales girl in the drugstore said she uses it all the time, and she's not half as homely as you are. What? I mean, you're just as pretty.
3: And that's just about what happened. You walked into a drugstore, saw a pretty face, and didn't know what you were buying.
4: I didn't look at her face at all.
3: If you were going to buy me a present, why didn't you buy me something I could use? Why didn't you get me an ounce of taboo? What's that? My favorite perfume.
4: Well, you've got a dresser full of perfume. taboo, Sabu, Snafu, Sterno. Enough perfume for any woman alive. Look at those bottles.
3: They're all empty and it's all your fault. You left the corks out and it evaporated.
4: I leave the cork out of my bourbon, don't I?
3: Well, what about it?
4: That never evaporates.
3: You never give it a chance. I don't see why I should have to do without because of your nasty habits. What do you think makes a thing dry up, John?
4: Wish I knew.
3: Don't be so funny.
4: Oh, I'm not funny. I'm sleepy. You know I worked at the office 18 hours without a let-up?
3: That's what you said you did.
4: That's what I did. I did it for what I thought was a good reason, but now I'm sorry. Why? Forget it.
3: What is it, John? What happened? (gasps) You lost your job.
4: I didn't lose my job. I got two weeks vacation with pay. It's the first vacation I've had in seven years and I wanted to enjoy it. But no, you wouldn't stand for that, would you?
3: How can you say that, John? Of course I want you to enjoy yourself. Where's the money?
4: In my wallet. Two whole weeks pay. Now, do you mind if I rest?
3: You know, John, I haven't had a vacation either. A change of scene will do us both a world of good. If you're so tired, there's only one thing in the world for you to do. He's doing it. Where did he say that money was? Oh, here it is two weeks pay.
4: Blanche, put that money back.
3: Oh, I I thought you were sleeping, dear.
4: What were you doing with that money? What's the matter, Blanche?
3: I'm not doing anything. I'm just counting it to see if they gave you the right amount.
4: It's the right amount. Put it back and go to sleep.
3: You needn't talk like that. I wasn't going to steal it.
4: Who said you were? Just
3: like you to make a crack like that.
4: I didn't make any cracks at all.
3: Go on. Call the police, have me arrested, put me in prison.
4: Nobody's putting you in prison. They'll
3: lock me up in solitary confinement. Rats running all over me in my cell. And I stand helpless, shaking, behind iron bars. No way to escape. Blanche. Oh, why don't you send me a hacksaw, John?
4: You're getting hysterical.
3: Well, don't fall accusing me of taking your money. It's half mine anyway.
4: It's all yours. All I want is sleep.
3: I don't see why we can't go away on a vacation for a few days.
4: You go. I told you I'm going to do nothing but sleep for the whole two weeks.
3: You'll have to get up sometime.
4: Not even once.
3: How are you going to collect your unemployment insurance?
4: What unemployment insurance?
3: You're going to be out of work for two weeks.
4: You can't collect unemployment insurance if you've got a job. If
3: you're not working, you haven't got a job, have you?
4: That's different. Why? I don't know why. Nobody does it, that's all.
3: Well, what's the good of unemployment insurance if you don't get any money when you're unemployed?
4: Being on vacation is not the same as being unemployed.
3: Don't tell me. What? Clara's husband, Barney, has never had a job his whole life, and he collects his unemployment check every week.
4: He can't collect any checks if he doesn't work.
3: I thought you said they only pay you when you don't work.
4: That's right, but you have to work before you can be out of work so you have a legitimate claim for the money you earn that you don't get.
3: I don't get it. Oh, leave me alone. And I'm telling you now, John, you've got two weeks off, and you're going to do one of two things. Do you hear me? I hear you. Either you start collecting your unemployment insurance, or else you fill in those two weeks with another job.
4: Another job? This is my vacation.
3: I don't care. It won't hurt you to work those two weeks. And we could use the money.
4: Okay, I'll get another job in the morning.
3: You say it, but you won't do it. Do it now. What? Go on, get up. Get a job, you loafer.
4: What kind of a job can I get at 2 o'clock in the morning?
3: What's the matter with being a night watchman?
4: I won't do it. I won't do it. You've got no right to deprive me of my two weeks off. I don't care what happens. I won't get another job.
3: All right, then. promise you'll take me away on a vacation.
4: There's no way out. I promise.
3: Will you swear?
4: Every minute that we're away.
3: I know where we'll go. Lake Tahoe. I'll only have to buy a few more dresses and you can wear your dungarees all the time. Okay. Just tell them you came in from fishing. And if it gets cold, I've got just the thing. Let me show you what I picked up on sale yesterday.
4: I don't want to see it.
3: Just look at this, John. Isn't it stunning?
4: What's so stunning about a bath rug?
3: It's a fur cape, silly.
4: Well, where's the fur?
3: Well, that's the way it's supposed to look. It's the very latest style. Sheared beaver.
4: Sheared beaver?
3: It's been clipped.
4: So have I.
3: You have not. This is worth every penny, John. You know I'm a good judge of furs.
4: Oh, sure. The past two years, you bought a bald mink and a plucked skunk.
3: Well, what's wrong with them?
4: The mink stinks and the skunk drunk. Blanche, how much did you pay for this one? Only $94. $94? Oh, Blanche, you didn't. Get that money back, you hear me? Get that money back.
3: Don't get hysterical. As soon as the...
4: Blanche, how could you do this to me? I deny myself everything. I've been sewing heels on your old pocketbooks and wearing them for shoes. I've been eating the padding out of my overcoat shoulders to save on breakfast cereal. I don't even drink my bourbon anymore. I just chew the cork and hit myself on the head with the bottle. I never spend a nickel on myself.
3: You bought a bag of popcorn yesterday.
4: That wasn't popcorn. My teeth fell out from malnutrition. I'm warning you, Blanche. Blanche, you're not going to get away with it. What do you want? Hello, Bickerson? This is Mr. Guernsey. Yes. uh, Oh, hello, Mr. Guernsey. I hate to be calling you at this hour, Bickerson, but something very urgent has come up. What happened? I just received word that our Chicago plant burned down, and we weren't covered. This morning, I filed bankruptcy proceedings, and I'm closing up for good. What? I trust you'll find a new position, and I do wish you good luck. Well, uh, thanks. By the way, Bickerson, would you mind sending back that two-week salary I gave you? I need every penny I can scrape together yeah um sure. I'll send it. Uh, goodbye. Well, did you hear that, Blanche?
3: No, what was it?
4: My boss, Mr. Guernsey, I lost my job.
3: <gasps> wonderful.
4: Wonderful. What's so wonderful about it?
3: Now you can collect your unemployment insurance.
4: Oh Blanche.
3: Good night, John.
4: Well, that wraps things up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. We've even got Smokin' George Winters tickling the ivory, so let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow with uh, Wednesday's edition of Armchair Politics. Mark Everson joins our roundtable regulars. Thanks to my guests today, Hollywood executive Samantha Hart. And... Um, Heather Hurwitz from uh, Case Western Reserve University and Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies. Interesting show today, as they all are. Anyway, see you tomorrow. Good night, everybody.
0: The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions.